It's great to see all of you today on this Easter Sunday. Thank you for being with us at Cross Point Church. My name is Dave. Today, you won't be surprised by the subject matter. We're going to talk about the greatest comeback in the history of the world. Everyone, everyone loves a great comeback story. I'm a big sports fan, so I love comebacks in sports. Even if I don't like the team that much, I love a great comeback. And I had the privilege of seeing probably the, the greatest comeback in sports history. And that was in 2004 when the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. And if you weren't, uh, if you didn't see that happening, well, here's, here's the story. The Boston Red Sox in 2004 didn't even win their division. They were a wild card team. They barely made the playoffs. The New York Yankees finished ahead of them in first place. They were the best team in the American League. The Red Sox somehow made it to the American League Championship Series, and they lost the first three games of a best-of-seven series. They looked terrible in the first three games. They lost the first three games. No team in the history of Major League Baseball, which is over 100 years of playoff baseball, had ever come back to win a seven-game playoff series, being down three games to nothing. And so game four comes along in Boston. The Boston Red Sox are losing 4-3 to three in the bottom of the ninth inning, and the Yankees bring in the greatest closer in the history of Major League Baseball, Mariano Rivera. Nobody, nobody thought the Red Sox were going to win that series, especially Red Sox fans. Red Sox fans had been disappointed countless times by their team. They weren't expecting anything great to happen. They were packing up, and they were ready for the season to be over. But then something happened. Mariano Rivera walked the first batter. The Red Sox sent in a pinch runner. He stole second base. He was barely safe. And the Red Sox tied the game. Mariano Rivera blew the save, which hardly ever happened, ever. And then the game went on to the 12th inning. In the bottom of the 12th inning, David Ortiz stepped up, hit a, hit a walk-off home run to win game four. And that made a lot of Boston Red Sox fans angry. You know why? Because they knew... That, what, how the series was going to end. In fact, I've seen documentaries on this series, and there was some, uh, one Boston Red Sox fan in particular, he said, how dare you come back to win game four when I already know how this series is going to end. They felt like they were just delaying the inevitable. But then they won game five, they won game six, and they won game seven. And then they won the next four games to sweep the Cardinals and become World Series champions for the first time in 86 years. Nobody thought the Red Sox were going to win eight games in a row when they were down three games to nothing in the American League Championship Series. It's one of the greatest comebacks, maybe the greatest comeback in professional sports history, and nobody expected it to happen, especially the most devoted Boston Red Sox fans. And that's what made it such a great comeback, I think. Now, you all probably know someone in your life or somebody you know who has a great comeback story. Maybe you know someone who was an alcoholic and their entire life just became unraveled. They ruined all their relationships and hit rock bottom, but then they got sober and made a great comeback. Maybe you know someone who was an addict and they got clean. Maybe you know someone whose marriage was on the rocks and it looked like there was no way they were going to make it through. But through a lot of grace and forgiveness and hard work, Their marriage not only survived, but is now thriving today, and they're totally in love. Maybe you know someone whose marriage didn't survive. They got a divorce, and they were at rock bottom, but then they met 
somebody, maybe God brought someone else into their life who changed all of that. I have a friend, I have a lot of friends who, who've been divorced, but one friend in particular, he definitely married the wrong woman. She, she lied, she cheated, she stole from him, and then she left him, and she left him with nothing, and he was, he was considering taking his own life at one point. That's how low he was. And then God brought this amazing woman into his life, and I've never, he, they ended up getting married, and I've never seen him happier than he is right now. That's a great comeback story. I have another friend who made a total mess of his life. His life was a complete disaster. He, he ruined his entire life and, and relationships through substance abuse, and he, he didn't see any hope or any way out. And one day he was in his garage, and he had a rope around his neck, and he was standing on his workbench, and he was ready to throw his life away. And right before he stepped off of that bench, he, he told me that he heard Jesus call his name. And he didn't hear it audibly, but he just, he felt God's presence saying, don't do this, your life is about to start. And his life really did begin. And his story is amazing. It's amazing what God has done in his life and what he's doing today. Now what about you? Is your story a comeback story? Where's the comeback in your story? When you think about your life and everything you've been through and where you are today, where's the comeback? And, and here's, what I, here's what I really want you to know is that if Jesus is part of your story at all, then your story is a comeback story. It has to be because that's what Jesus is all about. And, and the best comebacks are the ones that nobody expects to happen. And that's what makes Jesus' comeback so amazing. And it's what, one of the things that makes it the best comeback ever. Because the men and women who were closest to Jesus did not expect him to rise from the dead. None of them saw that coming. None of them even thought it was a possibility. Until they saw his body alive days after he was buried. And that's one of the reasons that the story we're going to read today is so remarkable. And so if you have a Bible this morning, please turn it to the Gospel of John chapter 20, or turn your Bible on to John chapter 20. We're going to read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of John. And where we begin here is, is takes place right after we read about a very detailed account of Jesus' burial. He had been crucified a couple days earlier. And was buried in a brand new tomb that no one had been laid in before. The Roman soldiers rolled a very heavy stone to seal the tomb. The Roman seal was placed on that stone. There were guards placed to protect the tomb and all of that. And then in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. This is sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. See, Mary thinks he's still dead. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. 
He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw, the two, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I don't know how much you know about Mary Magdalene. She has an amazing comeback story. We know a little bit about her from the Gospels and from early church history. A lot of this comes from Luke chapter 8. We know that Mary Magdalene, the reason she was called Mary Magdalene is because she was from a town called Magdala, That's sort of like Jesus was called the Nazarene because he was from the town of Nazareth. So she was referred to as Mary Magdalene. Now Magdala was kind of a party town. It was like a resort town on the western shores of Galilee. It's one of those towns, it reminds me of Cancun. It's one of those places where all the spring breakers go and where all kinds of crazy things happen. And that's what it was known for. And Mary Magdalene was totally immersed in that town's uh, life and culture until she met Jesus. There was a lot of corruption and immorality going on in that town. And Jesus, we're told in Luke chapter 8, that Jesus healed Mary of many infirmities and illnesses. It's, it's accepted by the commentators or believe that she suffered from both physical and mental illnesses. And Jesus heals her. He also casts seven demons out of her. And then she devotes her life to following Jesus and ministering to the needs of Jesus and his disciples. So this is the Mary who historians believe provided for Jesus and the disciples from whatever she had. She was constantly serving them behind the scenes. We don't hear a lot about her as you go through the Gospels, but she's always there serving, giving of herself. That's who she was, serving behind the scenes. She was the Jesus, or I'm sorry, she's the Mary who historians believed before meeting Jesus lived a very a wicked and immoral lifestyle. She's the, G- she's the Mary. I keep wanting to say Jesus. <laughs> she's the Mary who was there for the mock trial of Jesus. She's the Mary who heard Pontius Pilate hand down the death sentence. 
She's the Mary who watched the crowd beat Jesus and humiliate Jesus and spit on Jesus and torment Jesus. She's the Mary who was there for Jesus' entire crucifixion, watching him die slowly on the cross, trying to comfort him, weeping her eyes out. She was there the whole time. She never left his side, unlike the disciples. Almost every one of Jesus' disciples was gone, scattered for fear of the Jews by that point. In fact, long before that, even during the mock trial, the disciples were nowhere to be found. They were hiding in the background in the shadows, watching from a distance for fear of the Jews. And there's Mary right there, taking it all in. She was not afraid of what people would think of her or say to her or do to her because of her love and affection for Jesus. She did not care what it cost her to be by Jesus' side and to show her devotion to him through it all. She never left him. She loved him more than anybody. And she showed it with her actions. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor John was talking about how perfect love casts out fear. Fear and love, they're incompatible. And that's how Mary loved. She loved fearlessly. That's how she loved Jesus. And, she, and here's the, maybe the greatest thing about Mary's story is she is the first person who gets to see Jesus alive. She's the first. If I were to write a biography about Mary Magdalene, I might call it how God chose a woman who was a sexually immoral, reformed mental patient possessed by demons to be the first Christian. I know that's a long title, but you get the point. God chose this woman, this woman, to be the first to encounter the risen Lord Jesus. I think that's amazing. And the funny thing is, she doesn't even realize it's Jesus. She, Jesus is right there standing right in front of her, and she doesn't know it's him. Why can't she tell that Jesus is alive? Why can't she tell that it's Jesus standing right in front of her? There's plenty of signs, and she misses all of them. First of all, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection many times to the disciples and to Mary, and he said it plainly. He wasn't speaking in parables. He said over and over again while they were following him, that I, he said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. I'm going to come back to life. He kept saying it. Over and over again. And, then, and nobody understood what he was getting at. They, none of them believed it. None of them thought he was talking literally. None of them understood that. And we know, that, we know that's true because even though she heard Jesus say that over and over again, she comes to the tomb early in the morning and she, she sees the empty tomb, another sign, right? And she doesn't say, he did it, he's alive. She's not overjoyed, she's defeated. She's not victorious. She's down. She's grieving. She cries out, where have they taken him? They've taken his body. They've put it somewhere else. She doesn't get it. Have you ever wondered why it seems so difficult for people to see Jesus today? Do you ever listen to some people and wonder, how can you not see God in this? How can you not see Jesus at work in your life? How can you not see What's happening here? And the truth is that no one can see Jesus. No one can see Jesus until Jesus calls their name. And that's exactly what he does with Mary. In one moment, her whole world's falling apart. In the next moment, 
She's overjoyed. That change happened with one word, Mary. She'd probably heard Jesus say her name like that a thousand times. And when he says it here, the light comes on. She sees Jesus. John chapter 10. Listen to what the apostle writes in chapter 10, verse 3. This is Jesus speaking to the crowd. And he's talking about how people enter the kingdom of God. And he says, The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. See, following Jesus always leads us back to God. And that's how we come back to life. That's, that's always how it starts. It starts with Jesus calling us by name. Are we talking about some mystical experience where we actually hear the audible voice of Jesus? No. We're talking about a very real experience where we respond to the preaching of the gospel. And we believe that Jesus is alive. That's how it happens, through faith. It happens when a sinner comes home. It happens when a sinner turns back to God. We call that repentance. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a series of parables about sinners who come back home to God or, or sinners who were lost and are found. And what we're told is that anytime a sinner turns back to God or finds their way back to God, there is rejoicing in heaven by all of the angels. Every single time, even one sinner repents, there's a huge party in heaven. Because the angels know that what they're seeing is an incredible comeback story. That's just starting. Someone has just heard Jesus and they believed. And now their life is going to change forever. And they're on their way home. They're, they're, they're following Jesus right back to God. And when I think about that, it makes me think of what in 2004, what downtown Boston must have been like, or what it was like, when the Boston Red Sox finally won the World Series and everyone was going crazy in that town. Except I think the angels probably celebrate much more responsibly than people in Boston did in 2004. The point is that every great comeback starts with Jesus calling a sinner's name. And what that means is that faith in Jesus is impossible without Jesus speaking your name. It's impossible. Jesus has to call you and you have to hear him and answer. So you can lay all the evidence all the historical evidence for the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. And there is a lot. There's a ton. You can lay it in front of a person. You can try to persuade them. You can give a, a bulletproof argument for the existence of Jesus Christ. And it won't change anything. Do you know why? Because Jesus has to speak their name. No amount of evidence is strong enough to lift the veil from someone's eyes so that they can see Jesus and surrender themselves to him in faith and love. It's impossible. Mary's a great example. Here's Mary. Here's a woman who actually wants Jesus to be alive. And yet, despite all of Jesus' promises and all the physical evidence that's right in front of her, the empty tomb, the angels, she can't see Jesus. She can't believe. And that doesn't change until Jesus calls her by name. In other words, faith is a gift. Faith is something that God gives to us. It's not something we give to God. Faith is something God gives to us. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So no one can see, this is what Paul's saying, no one can see the risen Jesus unless God gives them faith. No one can exercise faith in Jesus unless God shines the light of Jesus in their hearts because faith is a gift. And Paul goes so far as to compare it with the creation story. Where God said, let light shine out of darkness. He's saying it happens like that. And you know, if, if you know Genesis chapter 1 and how that account is laid out, God creates light out of what? Nothing. God creates the universe out of nothing. And Paul is saying, God gives faith to people when there was nothing there. They weren't close to God. They weren't on their way to God. They weren't exercising some faith, but not quite enough. There's nothing. And God shines the light of Christ in their heart, and he says, let there be light. And the light comes on, and they see see that Jesus is alive, and they surrender their life to him. That's how it happens. Faith is a gift. There's another misconception about faith, which goes like this. Faith is necessary when there isn't enough evidence or logic to arrive at what you want to be true. You've heard that before, haven't you? I heard that in college all the time. To put it another way, the more information and evidence and facts that you're able to uh, collect, the less faith you need. You've probably heard that. Or put it another way, logic and evidence and science, that's one thing, but faith is another thing altogether. But all of those statements are completely inconsistent with the biblical definition of faith. Biblical faith is being certain of what we don't see because of the evidence. Because of the evidence. Biblical faith always produces critical thinking, rationality. It engages the intellect. It makes us logical about our condition and about the future. Think about the the resurrection narratives in the Gospels. There's four of them. Think about those. Think about the evidence that we have. First of all, we know that none of the disciples, none of the women, nobody who knew Jesus, nobody who followed Jesus or was close to them, none of them expected Jesus to rise from the dead. None of them believed in the resurrection. There's no evidence that they did. They needed lots of tangible, physical evidence that Jesus was alive. They were skeptical. And despite all the times that Jesus clearly told them that he would rise from the dead, not a single one of them was camped outside the tomb on the third day. Except for Mary, who came to add spices to his dead body. Mary was not looking for a risen Jesus. And there were other women with her as well. And it makes me want to say, where were the men? Where were the disciples? They were nowhere near the tomb. And John admits here that none of them understood the resurrection was going to happen. None of them understood it. None of them believed it. Secondly, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are all women. Nobody in ancient times who wanted to start a credible movement that was based on its leader 
rising from the dead would make the first eyewitnesses be women. Because in ancient times, a woman's testimony in first century Palestine was not even admissible in a Roman or Jewish court. Women were considered unreliable. They were treated as second-class citizens in the legal arena. That's just how it was. So why would you... If you were making up a story about the resurrection, trying to convince people that it was true, why in the world would you have women be the first eyewitnesses? You wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Probably the most compelling evidence, for me anyway, is the fact that in the gospel accounts, in the narratives on the resurrection, in, all the, in the gospel accounts, period, the entire four gospels, they're written as history. They're not written like fiction at all. Nobody in ancient times, if they were writing fiction, every secular scholar will agree with this. None of them included details in their story that were irrelevant to the story. Nobody wrote that way. Nobody wrote fiction that way. No fictional author included details that were unnecessary. That practice came many hundreds of years later. All four Gospels are written as history, not fiction. And there are tons of details just in the Gospel of John alone, that are completely unnecessary to the story. In John chapter 8, when Jesus meets the woman who was caught in adultery, and he's going back and forth with the scribes and Pharisees about what to do with this woman. We caught her in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And we're told that as he's talking with them, he stoops down and he draws a line in the sand and he begins to write in the ground. And then he gets back up and continues the conversation. Why would you, we have no idea what he wrote in the ground. It doesn't add anything to the story. Why is that in the story? Because it happened. Somebody remembered that he did that. That's why it's there. In the account that we just read in John chapter 20, there's a ton of details I'm I'm skipping over here. In John chapter 20, we're told that Peter and John were running to the tomb. And John goes out of his way to tell us that he beat Peter to the tomb twice. He outran Peter. Why do we need to know that? We don't. Maybe John was competitive. He remembered that he beat Peter. And he included it in the story. In John chapter 21, we're told that Jesus appeared to the disciples again. They were out fishing on a lake. And Jesus, they didn't, they didn't know it was him at the time. He said, throw your net. They had caught nothing all morning. They were fishing through the night. And he said, throw your net over to the other side. They threw their net over to the other side. They bring in this huge catch of fish. But it doesn't just say that they brought in a huge catch of fish. It says that they caught 153 fish. Why is that in there? Because somebody remembered that that's how many fish they caught. And we're talking about fishermen here. They they count their fish. that's That's what happened. It's history. Someone remembered the details. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this subject. He said this. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. Here's an expert on ancient literature. He taught at Oxford, I believe. He says, I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. These gospel texts, these, there are only two possible views of them. Either this is reported pretty close to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or any successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't understand, who doesn't see this, is, is simply not learned how to read. 
Okay, the point is, these are eyewitness accounts. These are eyewitness accounts. And this is the greatest comeback in the history of the world. And you can't come to the Bible, okay? So many people come to the Bible for different reasons. But the one thing you can't do is come to the Bible, especially the Gospels, and say, I'm not going to read this literally. Okay, I appreciate the Bible. There's some great principles in there, and there's a lot of great wisdom in there and encouragement and inspiration, but I'm not going to take it literally. That's the one thing you can't say. The apostles who wrote this stuff would much rather you just reject it altogether than to say this didn't happen. Remember 1 John? We just finished a series in 1 John. Remember the first couple verses of 1 John? What's the first thing he says? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He's saying, we are eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. Everything that I live for is based on that reality. That Jesus is alive. I've seen him. That's what he's saying. And because Jesus is alive, I have to ask you this today. Has he called your name? Has Jesus invited you to die to your old life and follow him? Has that happened? Have you heard him call your name and have you said yes? Think about this. Here's Mary standing in the middle of maybe the greatest event in history up to this point. She's she's witnessing the greatest sign of God's power and victory in the history of the world. Here in the garden where the tomb is, God is proving himself faithful beyond the shadow of a doubt. Here in front of Mary is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And all she sees is a disaster. All she sees is loss. And pain. Can't you picture yourself in this situation? Haven't you ever been, you know, in a situation where things looked hopeless? You know, you looked at your life, or you looked at one of your kids, or you looked at your spouse, or you looked at your job or your career, and you just thought, this, this is going nowhere. This has to change. There's no hope, this, or this is never going to change. Woe is me. And yet God is right there in the middle of all of it working on your behalf. Have you ever thought, where is God? Where is God in this? I thought he's supposed to be good. I thought he was on my side. I thought he loved me. Sure doesn't feel like it. It feels like he's abandoned me. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever doubted God's promises when all around you there was evidence that he's right there? Listen, my friends. The reason your life can look like such a wreck at times and that if you can feel like God has abandoned you and that there's no hope, is not because God is not with you or because God has forgotten you. It's because you don't see him. It's because you have forgotten him. You have somehow forgotten his promises. You have taken your eyes off of him. You have forgotten that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, my friends. What more do we need? What more proof do we need that God is for us? What further guarantee do we need that God is going to finish what he has started in us? The answer is nothing. 
We don't need any more than that. We have everything we need. And you know, shortly after John ends his gospel, after John 21, John doesn't record the, re- the ascension of Jesus, but we know that shortly after John ends his gospel, Jesus ascended back into heaven with his Father. And Matthew tells us that all the disciples were there and that they're, wa- they're standing, and here's Jesus physically right there in front of them. And he's about to ascend, and they're, and he's, they're watching him ascend into heaven. And it says, some doubted. Some doubted. Why would he put that there? Because it's true. People doubt. Even Jesus' closest followers are capable of great doubt. I don't think faith is real faith without doubt. It's going to be there from time to time. But I wonder, after Jesus ascended, Mary would not see him again. And I wonder how many times she thought back to that scene in the garden. And how many times she... She tried to go back in her mind and picture seeing Jesus alive for the first time and hearing him say her name. And how much hope that gave her for her future. You know, I was watching a Bucks game recently. Y'all know my, I'm a huge Bucks fan. I talk about the Bucks probably too much. <laughs> and I was watching this Bucks game and they're playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. This was just last week. And LeBron James was on the free throw line. You know how they have microphones around on the court and you can hear the players talking sometimes. And LeBron James is getting ready to shoot a free throw. And here over on one of the blocks is Miles Plumley. I bet you hardly any of you even know who that is. He's the Bucks' second string power forward. And he's getting ready to get a rebound. And LeBron James, I hear him say, he says, hey, you get Plumley to one of his players. He just says you to his player, but he called Plumley by name. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, he knows who Miles Plumley is. I'm kind of surprised he even knew who Miles Plumley was. I mean, he's been in the league a couple years and stuff, and but he's really no. He's not a well-known basketball player. Most of you don't even know who he is. I'll bet. LeBron James is calling him by name. He thinks Miles Plumley's good enough that someone needs to block box him out. And I'm thinking, boy, I would love to be Miles Plumley right now. He probably feels amazing. LeBron James knows my name. Wow, that probably made his whole career. I mean, if I was Miles Plumley, I would feel pretty good about myself. LeBron James is concerned about me, and he knows my name. But guys, that's nothing. That's, that, that is nothing. Because Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, our God, okay, he knows your name. He knows your name. And he is calling you. To follow him. Are you listening? Can you hear him? There are times when I struggle with doubt just like everybody. And I struggle with worry and fear. And I can be discouraged or have a, I, I have a terrible attitude at times. And that's when I need to remember that Jesus is alive and he calls me by name. He calls me by name. He knows me. My name is written in his book of life. He chose me. He's my shepherd. He's my Lord and my Savior. He'll never leave me. He'll never abandon me. He gives me life. And because Jesus came back to life, my story is a comeback story. 
Because he lives, I've come back to life, and my life is part of the greatest comeback of all time. It's only going to get better because someday I'm going to stand before Jesus, and I'm going to see his face. We're going to be face to face, and he's going to call me by name, and I'm going to hear it. And he's going to invite me to enter his rest. Is anything better than that? Have you come back to life? Has he called your name? If you believe that Jesus Christ is real and that he died on the cross, a sinless man, to pay for your sins, to free you, to give you peace with God, and that he rose again and is alive, what are you holding back? Your life belongs to him. And that's the best life there is. Your life belongs to him. And I'd encourage you today, to invite him in, to ask him for forgiveness, to show himself to you, to start your comeback. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is reliable and true. We thank you, God, that we can know you because you have spoken to us. We thank you that You sent your son to die on the cross for our sins and that he rose again to give us new life and peace with you. And that through the resurrection of Jesus, we are justified. We are not guilty. Just as we sang earlier, no guilt in life, no fear in death. That's the power of Christ in us. We thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, which is at work in us today. And I pray for anyone here today who is struggling in their sin or dead in their sin, and who is unsure about their future, that you would visit them in power today, that you would speak their name, that you would change their heart, that you would send, their, send your spirit to fill them and to make them brand new. That's the, that's the thing we want to celebrate, God, new life in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing there is. And we thank you for it, God. We thank you for your faithfulness to all your promises and that Jesus is alive. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.